Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Hunter Biden's longtime business partner testifies before House Republicans. What did he have to say about the president's knowledge of his son's foreign business dealings? It's coming any day now. That's what former President Trump is saying about a January 6th indictment. Plus, where he's at in the polls amid ongoing legal challenges. And will there be a fourth indictment? Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis said she's ready to go with her charging decisions. A judge today denied Trump's request to recuse her. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveils his economic platform for his 2024 campaign. Among the top priorities are economic independence and energy independence. And an Idaho mother who murdered two of her children was sentenced to life in prison today without the possibility of parole. New testimony about the president's potential involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Devin Archer served with Hunter Biden on Burisma's board of directors. Today, he spoke behind closed doors with members of the House Oversight Committee. NTD's Melina Weiskup is on site at the O'Neill office building in D.C. with the details. Devin Archer left the building without commenting or answering questions from reporters after giving an hours-long testimony to House Oversight Committee members on his first-hand knowledge with regards to Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. The big question here is whether he said anything that Republicans can use as evidence to start an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Now, most Republicans left without coming to speak to reporters. The one Republican that we did get a hold of, Congressman Andy Biggs, said that Archer testified that Barack would have gone out of business a lot sooner had the Biden brand not been invoked. Now, what exactly does that mean? Another congressman, a Democrat, Dan Goldman, said that Hunter Biden sold the illusion of access to his father when he served as vice president by finding ways to take credit for things that he actually had no involvement in. Such as when Vice President Biden went to Ukraine on his own, Hunter said, well, Let's tell them that I have no idea what's going to happen, but um, I can take credit for the fact that he's going. Now, there was a lot of focus on roughly 20 instances where Archer said he witnessed Hunter Biden call his father and put President Biden on speakerphone and asked him to say hello to his guests, which sometimes were his business associates. But Archer says in those conversations, they didn't speak about business at all. It was mainly just, you know, nice talk, very polite speaking, nothing very directly involved with business. But we will know more uh, from what Archer had to say when that written transcript becomes available in the coming days. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with Jeff Carlson about today's hearing. An investigative journalist, Jeff is also co-host of the epic TV show, Truth Over News. Jeff, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. Joe Biden has been saying for a long time that he hasn't had anything to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. But here, during this hearing, it seems to be that there have been... Um, evidence coming out to the contrary. Could you tell us what's your take on what we're learning so far? Yeah, well, you know, thank you for having me. Um, we weren't even sure if Devin Archer was going to show up to this meeting, but he did. We weren't sure if he was going to answer any questions. He did. We now know that Joe Biden was on at least 20 different phone calls with Hunter Biden and his business associates. And this is really important because we've now gone through this incredible evolution 
where Joe Biden initially said, I never talked to Hunter Biden about his business. Then we have this slight shift. Well, I, I never talked to Hunter's business associates. Now we know that he was on 20 different phone calls. So, you know, I, I yes, I talked to everybody, but it was just niceties. It was just pleasantries. That's the current narrative. But of course, you know, we can all see where this is going. And a lot of this originated uh, just at the last week. There was a new report that Joe Biden was on a, on a conference call with, with uh, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, the man who testified today, and the owner of Burisma and, Bur and his, his associate, Burisma's top executive. And it was an emergency meeting that was called after a Burisma board meeting. Well, it turns out that that meeting just so happened when the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times began their investigative looking into Hunter Biden's connections with Burisma. So the very same day that that information comes out, what happens? The owner of Burisma contacts Hunter and asks him to get his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, on the phone on a conference call to go over what almost certainly had to be their strategic response to those two articles which a flurry of emails that happened after that meeting show us that's exactly what they did. You know, Americans recently have seen their leaders embroiled in multiple scandals and investigations. What do you think would need to happen in this case to help restore trust in our leaders? I, I, yeah, that's a million dollar question. I frankly don't know the answer to that. I think trust has been so destroyed at this point. And it's not just in our leaders, but it's in our federal government and it's in all of the agencies that comprise our government. And in my opinion, that's part of what is going on right now is the protection that surrounded Joe Biden is not so much to protect Joe Biden himself or even to protect Joe's presidency, but it's to protect the people that stood behind that, such as Obama, but also the way of doing business in D.C. Um, that's been going on for decades now. It's not something that I think the, you know, they want the public to get uh, an insider's view on. So I think a lot of it has to do with that. And you've said that these recent revelations point to, you know, could provide more information on what we know about Russiagate. Could you speak to that? Well, you know, I, I've been kind of evolving in my theory on that, that I've begun to think that Russiagate may actually have been a response to cover up Biden's misdeeds in Ukraine. And the correlation of when Biden wrapped up everything with the Ukrainian prosecutor, got the new prosecutor in, all of that dovetails neatly, perfectly into when the attacks began on Trump. And, you know, if everything that we believe to be true and each day is showing things, more and more things to be true, if all of those things are correct and accurate, then surely Joe Biden had an enormous vested interest, as did Obama, to ensure that all of the activities in Ukraine never saw the light of day. And the last thing they wanted, do, you know, wanted to happen was to have an outsider come into Washington and start poking around. And it's also worth bearing in mind that you know, not only did the establishment sort of rise up against Trump beginning in the, the you know, early, early summer of 2016, they also had an absolutely outlandish response to a single phone call to, to the Ukraine, to then Ukrainian president and, you know, inquiring about Biden's activities in Ukraine. So we're beginning to shift our thinking and thinking that that's really the genesis of Russiagate, is that it was to cover up Biden's activities in Ukraine. And with that, thank you so much, Jeff Carlson, investigative journalist and co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Yes, thank you for having me. 
A new poll confirms former President Trump's popularity among Republicans despite his legal woes. That's as Trump says another indictment could come any day now. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Former President Trump has 54% support among likely Republican primary voters, leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by a staggering 37-point margin. That's according to a new New York Times and Siena College poll released today, which shows that no other candidate has reached over 3% support. And Trump's wide lead comes despite legal challenges facing the former president. Among those polled, 7 in 10 Republican voters say that they don't think Trump has committed any serious crimes. These are ridiculous indictments, and all they're doing is hoping for massive election interference. That's all they want to do. Trump condemning the latest indictments in a rally this past weekend and said today that he expects another indictment to come any day now on charges related to January 6. And that says the classified documents case continues to escalate as special counsel Jack Smith added three charges against Trump last week and is now going after a new defendant. Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira is accused of attempting to delete CCTV footage sought by the grand jury. He appeared in the Miami court for the first time today and is expected to enter a plea next week. And all this happens as Trump's Safe America Super PAC has reportedly spent over $40 million on legal fees since the start of this year. And Trump's team says it's necessary to both combat actions against Trump and to protect innocent people who work for Trump from financial ruin. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And will Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis be disqualified from the Trump investigation? Today, a Fulton County judge says no, but a Cobb County judge is set to hear Trump's request next month. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reviews the expected indictment and the moves the DA is already making. As charges loom against former President Trump, a Fulton County judge today refused to block prosecutor Fannie Willis from announcing those charges. In a nine-page decision, Judge Robert McBurney said Trump's bid to disqualify Willis was premature. McBurney, who is presiding over the Georgia grand jury investigation, said Trump should wait until after charges have been filed to challenge the propriety of the investigation. Trump's attorney sought to prevent Willis from relying on recommendations made by a special grand jury. They said the jury didn't have the authority to issue charges. However, the jury did have some subpoena power and heard testimony from dozens of witnesses. They issued a final report with several recommendations. A former state prosecutor said this report is unusual. Um, Georgia has this unusual creature that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country, where they call this special grand jury that enables it to do uh, conduct different kinds of investigations, but it does not have the authority to, in fact, uh, issue indictments or, char or indictments or charges. He said ultimately the prosecutor has to go to a regular grand jury that has authority to issue indictments. But he said the regular grand jury should be required to listen to all of the same testimony that the special grand jury heard. Trump's team is seeking to block Willis from relying on any evidence or testimony used in the report and also to disqualify her from any further investigation. But Willis isn't slowing down her investigation. In a recent interview with WXIA, she said she will announce charging decisions by September 1st. What do you think the potential charges could be? 
what everybody's talking about, generally speaking, is what they call the RICO, or Racketeering Influenced uh, and Corrupt Organization Act of Georgia. It's a Georgia state law that uh, has to do with when people get together and commit a different group of uh, criminal acts for the uh, for the purpose uh, for a common purpose. He believes that Trump can legitimately challenge the special grand jury report on constitutional grounds and said that as president in 2020, Trump had the right to challenge the election and should be immune from prosecution. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Zooming in on the 2024 presidential race, Republican candidate Ron DeSantis today unveiled his economic agenda calling it a declaration of economic independence. He's promising to revitalize the economy. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday unveiled his economic platform for the 2024 campaign, calling it the Declaration of Economic Independence. The DeSantis campaign says it's an agenda to reverse the decline of America's economy and fight for the middle class. And that begins uh, by restoring an American economy that actually works for American families again. And the reality is, if you've seen over these many years, American families have been saddled with weak economic growth, uh, high prices, their quality of life, qu uh, uh, quality of life has stagnated, uh, yet we've seen our national debt explode, and the Chinese Communist Party continues to eat this country's lunch every single day. Ten items are on the agenda. Number one is taking control of the economy from China and restoring economic sovereignty. Next, there are cutting red tape, keeping taxes low, unleashing energy independence, and ending ESG standards by large investors. So we will declare our economic independence from the failed elites that have orchestrated American decline, from the reckless federal spending that has inflated prices and plunged this nation to the brink of bankruptcy, we will declare our economic independence from the Chinese Communist Party. Also on the agenda are restoring merit, reforming the education system, and creating a fair labor market by securing the border. The DeSantis campaign also promises to rein in the Federal Reserve, oppose bailouts, and fight wasteful federal spending. And I want a country where Americans that work hard, Americans that get the most out of their God-given ability, are able to get ahead in this country, they're able to raise a, raise a family, and they're able to lead fulfilling and productive lives. And the unveiling of DeSantis' economic agenda follows a reset of his campaign and dwindling resources. DeSantis will continue to campaign in New Hampshire Tuesday before heading back to Iowa for more events on Friday. Reporting by Allison Lee and TD News. And where does our future generation stand on the political spectrum? Recent data shows that 12th grade boys in America are trending overwhelmingly conservative, whereas girls at that age are leaning left. NTD Sam Wong has more. According to a survey from Monitoring the Future, around 23% of U.S. high school senior boys identify as conservatives or very conservative in 2022. That number is nearly double those who consider themselves liberal. Girls, on the other hand, are becoming increasingly left-leaning. From 2012 to 2022, 12th grade girls who hold liberal views rose from 19% to 30%, and only 12% see themselves as conservative. The same trend is also happening among women between 18 to 30. 
Political views among teenage boys have changed slowly but drastically over the years. During the Carter administration, both boys and girls leaned more towards the left. Fast forward through the 1980s all the way into the late 2000s, conservatism began to see its rise in boys, and liberal views only dominated on a few occasions. The politics of young men have remained almost static over the last two decades, but the increase of young liberal women is enough to steer youth polling as a whole towards that direction. So where does our youth actually stand in politics? To find out, I spoke with some of them walking by. Liberal, yeah. Conservative. I think I'm more of an independent. I'm going to have to say I'm more liberal. I would definitely say I'm probably more liberal. And some gave me their um, reasons. It just kind of aligns with the way I think this country should be run. Um, a lot with the Kennedy-esque politics, I think. I suppose I mainly support Democratic candidates because they're generally lean a little bit more economically and socially liberal. Definitely because I support like women's rights and minority rights and I'm pro-choice. <laughs> Despite the ongoing trend, most high school seniors claim no political identity. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. And next, an Idaho mother who murdered two of her children will spend the rest of her life in prison. Laurie Vallow-Daybell was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole today. The former beauty queen killed her 16-year-old daughter, Tylee Ryan, and 7-year-old son, Joshua Vallow, in 2019. She then lied to investigators about the children's whereabouts for months. During the time they were reportedly missing, Vallow-Daybell married Chad Daybell, who is still awaiting trial for his alleged role in hiding the bodies. The children's remains were found on Daybell's property in 2020. In addition to the life sentences for the murders of her children, Vallow Daybell was also sentenced to life for conspiracy to commit murder. That charge stemmed from the death of Chad Daybell's first wife in 2019. And up next, illegal immigrants sleeping on New York City streets for days waiting for shelter. That says housing in the Big Apple is at full capacity. And a 99-year-old trucking company that was once a dominant player in its field halted operations Sunday and will lay off all 30,000 of its workers. Why? Find out in just a moment when we return. Illegal immigrants in New York City are sleeping on the street in front of an iconic Manhattan hotel. That says the makeshift processing center is hitting full capacity. The city's mayor today commenting on the issue. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Illegal immigrants sleeping on the street in front of the Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. NTD was on the scene getting this footage on Monday. The situation has been looking like this since Friday. The hotel is reportedly being used as a first stop for immigrants. There, they should be processed and then sent to other shelters across the city. However, New York City Mayor Eric Adams last month already said, We have no more room in the city and we need help for the federal government. People reportedly wait in this line for 24 to 48 hours before being processed. However, some say they've been waiting for five to six days. On Monday, Adams commented on the situation. He partly blamed border states who are sending buses to the Big Apple and the federal government for not supporting the city more and not making policy changes. Eventually, this was going to come to a neighborhood near you. And it is, uh, you know, you know 91,000 people. We need to allow people to work. 
there's nothing more anti-American than you can't work. We need to control the border. We need to call a state of emergency, and we need to properly fund this national crisis. Last month, Adams announced that adult illegal immigrants can only stay in city shelters for up to 60 days from now on. After that, they have to find alternative housing. Now, over the past few days, they endured strong heat and rain for hours. Overnight, the city provided buses for people to seek shelter. A reporter asked Adams on Monday if illegal immigrants might be housed in tents in the future, in Central Park, for example. I can assure you that this city is not going to look like other cities with their tents up and down every street. The mayor says New York City now has to adapt to the fact that there is no more indoor housing and that he'll announce next steps on where to house immigrants. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Cash-strapped U.S. trucking company Yellow Corporation has ceased operations and is filing for bankruptcy. This after failing to reorganize and refinance over a billion dollars in debt. The move means 30,000 people are at risk of losing their jobs. Yellow avoided a threatened strike by 22,000 Teamsters represented workers earlier this month. The company has 12,000 trucks. Its customers include large retailers like Walmart and Home Depot. Part of the company's debt is a $700 million pandemic relief loan provided in 2020 in exchange for a 30% stake in the Tennessee-based company. And now joining us live to talk about Yellow Corp is NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, do, you, do experts expect a wider impact on the economy with Yellow ceasing operations? So, first of all, let me just point out that G GDP from transport in the United States was over $500 billion in the first quarter of this year. So it is an important sector of the economy. We have to recognize that. And some Yellow Corp customers include large retailers, as you mentioned, Walmart and Home Depot. But White House uh, economic advisor Jared Bernstein said today that the reported bankruptcy of Yellow Corporation does not indicate an economic-wide problem. Um, rather, Yellow, Yellow's customers saw this coming, in fact, and shifted their cargo to other providers. So what led to the reported bankruptcy? So Bernstein mentioned that the company appeared to take on more debt than it could handle. Um, there are also reports that the company failed to contribute to its pension and health insurance plans. Uh, Teamsters president Sean O'Brien said, said very bluntly, I, I may add, in a statement that, quote, Yellow has historically proven that it could not manage itself despite billions of dollars in worker concessions and hundreds of millions in bailout funding from the federal government. So the company received a $700 million loan from the federal government in 2020. And three years later, we're in 2023 right now. And according to its most recent quarterly report, the company still owed the Treasury Department more than $700 million. Um, some analysts are saying that the company began taking on a significant amount of debt 20 years ago in order to acquire other trucking companies and that it could have somewhere around $1.5 billion in debt on its books. Now, Yellow Corp is reportedly the third largest trucking company in its category in the U.S. Is there going to be an impact on supply chains? So now... Yellow handles pallet-sized shipments of freights. Uh, this segment of the trucking, trucking industry is known as less than truckload. Um, 
The company handled about 7% of the nation's 720,000 daily less than truckload shipments last year, according to some estimates. Um, it's also estimated that there's about 10 to 10, 8 to 10% excess capacity in the less than truckload sector right now. So the closure of yellow shouldn't cause a significant disruption in supply chains. But that being said, it could cause rates to go up for shippers who depend on less than truckload carriers because it was the excess capacity that sent prices lower. And of course, when you don't have that excess capacity anymore, it, it makes sense that prices might go up. All right. Thanks so much for that update, Don. Thank you. And next, Elon Musk took another big step over the weekend, completely replacing Twitter's Bluebird with the letter X, moving onward toward his stated goal of creating an everything app. What major obstacles is X facing along the way? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. The Twitter bird is now completely gone, replaced with X, one of the letters of the alphabet. What challenges does Elon Musk face as he tries to transform X into a successful everything app? Brands take a very long time to build up, to build trust. It's also to the point that to tweet has become a verb. Business professor Nicholas Creel says the sudden rebranding doesn't make a lot of sense. While the blue Twitter bird is known throughout the world, the X is something completely new. But it's not new to Musk. One of his first companies was called X.com, which was later renamed PayPal. Musk wanted to change the name back to X, but the board opposed it because the letter X is mostly associated with pornography. And so a lot of people see that and it kind of sends up a red flag, particularly in a large segment of the population. Creel says many users and advertisers may be unwilling to associate with a product called X. Elon Musk loves X. You know, he's named his kid X when he, you know, multiple companies have used X as part of it. There's a Tesla X model. Social media professor Andrew Selipak says the rebranding shows people the app isn't just about microblogging. The name Twitter, the Bluebird, and the term tweet have been strongly associated with just sending out short text posts. X has a small user base compared to Instagram, compared to Facebook or YouTube or TikTok. So what I think Elon Musk is trying to do is seeing what other spaces can he enter the app into to get more people to use it. One key additional feature is the ability to make payments. This could have a significant impact on the money transfer space. Twitter um, has 450 million active users. So I think very quickly, um, if you were to offer payments, um, one, it can be a huge revenue driver. Joe Camberato is the CEO of fintech firm National Business Capital and has experience with payment apps. He says adding a money transfer feature is a big opportunity for X. Twitter's massive worldwide user base means many would have immediate access to the app and they wouldn't have to go through a bank to send money internationally. This feature could also leverage the social aspect of X making transferring money more of a social experience. Holland Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, California officials discover an illegal lab containing at least 20 potentially infectious agents. They also found nearly a thousand mice that had reportedly been genetically engineered to carry COVID-19. Did Dr. Anthony Fauci lie about gain-of-function research? Find out what's in a newly unredacted email and why our upcoming guest calls it a remarkable discovery in just a moment on NTD News.
welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Authorities discovered an illegal Chinese lab in California's Central Valley. It allegedly housed infectious diseases and nearly a thousand mice that had reportedly been genetically engineered to catch and carry COVID-19. Officials in the small city of Reedley, about half an hour from Fresno, found an illegal lab in what was supposed to be an empty building. According to the court document filed on June 15th by Fresno County, the property on 850 I Street is run by Prestige Biotech, a Nevada corporation, and Universal Meditech, a California company. The lab is unlicensed and unregulated. It did not properly store biological material, medical waste, and infectious agents. The way they were disposed of also violated state law. They found nearly a thousand mice. Most were euthanized and the rest were already found dead. The mice were raised in overcrowded cages with a lack of food and water. A person associated with Prestige Biotech informed the investigators that these mice were genetically engineered to catch and carry the COVID-19 virus. Between May 2nd through May 4th, CDC agents found E. coli, streptococcus pneumonia, hepatitis B and C, herpes 1 and 5, and rubella. In a declaration, Assistant Director of Fresno County Public Health, Humero Prado, said city staff communicated via email with Xu Quin Yao, supposedly the president of Prestige Biotech, back in March. City staff requested Ms. Yao provide any licenses or certifications permitting the experimentation on and breeding of these mice. Ms. Yao and Prestige Biotech failed to provide any certifications or licenses from any state or federal agency for storage and experimentation on mice and other laboratory activities at the property. A reporter with the Epic Times visited the site. Residents told him the business has not been in operation for at least five months, but noticed that someone is living in the building. They found individual phone numbers and addresses in China, but did not confirm that they have connections to business in California. And Senator Rand Paul has announced an official criminal referral to the Justice Department for Dr. Anthony Fauci. He says Fauci lied while giving testimony on COVID-19. Paul referenced an email sent by Fauci that discusses gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab in China. It shows that Fauci was concerned about the research. Paul says the email message contradicts what he told Congress, that the U.S. has not funded any gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. Paul and Fauci already had an ongoing conflict about the issue. In 2021, Paul told Fauci that lying to Congress is a crime. At that time, Paul cited a medical journal article dealing with coronaviruses. The experiments mentioned in the article took place at the same lab and said it was funded by U.S. health agencies. Fauci said at the time that the research in the article is not considered gain-of-function research. And here to discuss these allegations is Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and the author of Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on. In the newly unredacted email, Fauci said that Wuhan University is known to have been working on gain-of-function research. So how do you see his denial in the face of Senator Rand Paul's accusation that he's lying about this? It's, it's pretty brazen. It's a remarkable discovery, actually. I'm sure that Fauci has lied thousands of times over the decades in which he's testified. But it's very difficult to catch this guy. 
he has very uh, got a very clever way about him. But but in this in this case, all the conditions lined up. We got the Republicans in charge of of the House. We got Jim Jordan focusing uh, on on these the investigation. He was able to get unredacted emails. We we caught Fauci in a direct contradiction of his testimony to the Senate. So this is very powerful and very satisfying in some level. And Paul has said that Fauci's trying to obscure responsibility for the pandemic. If Fauci is lying, what kinds of pressures do you think could be at play here? Uh, well, there's a lot of pressure now, and he's trying to retire and sort of uh, sort of slink away. But it seems less likely now. Uh, and once it turns out that he's lying about the gain-of-function research in Wuhan, now everybody knows he did aggressively lie. Uh, everything else could come out now, too. And so what would full accountability look like to you on this point? Well, on the gain of function, first of all, it has to be banned. And it's got to be banned for direct funding and indirect funding. You can't, you know, tap uh, this EcoHealth Alliance or whatever, send them money and have them send it to Wuhan. And we need to find out exactly, you know, how gain of function was related to uh, this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the other thing is we need to understand exactly, you know, what Fauci knew and when he knew it and how his suspicion that the U.S. was somehow indirectly funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan related to his pandemic advice that he gave in, in late February. He changed his mind. He didn't think we needed lockdowns. Suddenly, he decided we, we needed them. We also need to know about that uh, proximal origin paper that he was involved in uh, commissioning and, and pumping and, and advocating for the entire world. So it opens up a, a ton of questions. And I think full accountability just means getting to the truth. And what do you think that is? Why do you think all these changes on Fauci's part? Uh, thank you for asking that. I, I can't say for sure, but I am almost certain, and I've felt this way for some time, that somehow Fauci's decision to lock down the country and follow the CCP model of, of uh, pandemic control is related somehow to his cover-up of the his relationship with the EcoHealth Alliance and the funding of the Wuhan lab. I'm not entirely sure how it's related, but something happened to Fauci between, uh, say, late January and late February to cause him to change his mind and become the biggest nation's biggest advocate of ending the Bill of Rights and restricting all Americans' freedom and destroying our economic lives. And we're still suffering from that decision. So we'd like to know a little bit more about how those things, things were related. It seems like it was related to a cover-up, but, you know, it's, it's hard to, to know for sure without more information. Further investigation required, for sure. Thank you so much. Yeah. Jeffrey Tucker, okay. founder and president That's of the Brownstone Institute and author of Liberty or Lockdown. Thank you. Turning our attention now to the suicide bombing in Pakistan on Sunday. The death toll from the blast has risen to 54, and an ISIS affiliate is claiming responsibility. Police said at least 54 people were killed after the attack on a political rally in northwestern Pakistan. Twelve of those who died were under the age of 12. More than 100 were injured, including 17 critically. At least 1,000 people were present at the rally, which was organized by a pro-Taliban Islamist party. A branch of ISIS today claimed responsibility, saying the attacker detonated an explosive vest. The incident appeared to reflect divisions between Islamist groups, which have a strong presence in the Pakistan province that borders Afghanistan. 
An investigation is underway and funerals were held today for some of the victims. And the junta that seized power in Niger has said that the government they toppled has given France authorization to carry out strikes to free the country's ousted president. France has neither confirmed nor denied the accusation. David Doyle has more. France has neither confirmed nor denied being given authorization to carry out strikes aimed at freeing Niger's ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum. That's after the military junta that seized power last week said on Monday that the government it had toppled had given such authorization. Here's Niger Army spokesman Colonel Amadou Abdraman. In keeping with its policy of seeking ways and means to intervene militarily in Niger, France, with the complicity of certain Nigerians, held a meeting at the headquarters of the Niger National Guard to obtain the necessary political and military authorizations. Bazoum has been confined to Niger's presidential palace since Wednesday. The junta has previously warned against foreign attempts to extract him, saying it would result in bloodshed and chaos. France has condemned the coup and urged that Bazoum be reinstated. However, it has not announced any intention to intervene militarily. Asked about authorization for strikes on Monday, the French foreign ministry said the only authority it recognizes is Bazoum's and that its priority was the security of its citizens and facilities. On Sunday, junta supporters attacked the French embassy in the capital, Niamey. The coup in Niger follows military takeovers in Mali and Burkina Faso amid a wave of anti-French sentiment. France has had troops in the region for a decade, helping to fight a jihadist insurgency. But some in West Africa want the former colonial power to stop intervening in their affairs. Also in evidence outside the French embassy on Sunday, as has been the case in previous such protests in Mali and Burkina Faso, Russian flags. They are indicative of Western concerns that West Africa's latest military takeover could open the door for greater Russian influence in the region, as well as allow the Sahel's insurgency to spread. The junta also announced today that it has detained three more senior politicians from the ousted government. The approximately 1,000 U.S. troops in Niger have been restricted to the American military base. The Biden administration has not yet formally decided if the situation constitutes a coup, a designation that would require the U.S. to cut foreign and military assistance to Niger's government, which could have serious consequences for the fight against terrorism and stability in the region. And the Biden administration says it is closely monitoring the situation in Haiti, where an American nurse and her child have been kidnapped. The woman works for a nonprofit organization called El Roy. The organization said the two were taken from campus on Thursday. The State Department issued a do not travel advisory last week. It ordered non emergency personnel to leave because of growing security concerns. Those include frequent kidnappings, crimes, civil unrest, and poor health infrastructure in the country. The party responsible for the kidnapping and their demands, if any, are currently unknown. Coming up, a former Wall Street banker cautions that large banks may be driving a movement to build a system of personal social credit scores here in the West. How it could affect you and what you can do about it. 
And in the NFL, a war of words breaks out before the season even starts. We'll have how Aaron Rodgers responded to Sean Payton when we return. How secure is your money? There seems to be a movement underway that's setting up a kind of social credit score system, and it starts with our personal finances. That's according to former Wall Street banker Kevin Stockland. He produced the epic original The Shadow State and now writes for the Epic Times as a business reporter. We spoke earlier today. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Your piece in the Epic Times today sounds the alarm over building potential for a personal social credit core system in the West. What would that look like and why should people be concerned? Well, um, so personal finance is really at the center of a lot of our connections to society. So what we're seeing is people uh, having their bank accounts abruptly shut. Uh, in some cases, their payment service, their access to credit cards and things like that canceled. Um, and it's, it's very hard to function um, for a company or for a human being with, without any sort of financial connection like this. And if this ramps up as you are anticipating it may, how close do you think we are to that kind of change? Well, it's very worrisome. So we've seen a number of cases in the UK, in the US, and certainly in Canada of people who have the wrong political or religious views suddenly being shut out of the system. Um, but the concern is that it could go wider. So we're seeing, for example, um, credit cards that are voluntarily offering um, your, your personal carbon footprint. And you can track that by your spending, how much you travel, how much gas you buy, what kind of food you buy. So we may be seeing environmental causes come in. And we're also seeing banks um, actively debank uh, industries they don't like, like firearms dealers, which are often small family mom and pop shops. They're getting cut off from payment services and banking services as well. And the green cards that you mentioned, like right now that's voluntary, but your worry is for if that information is then used against people, is that right? Yeah, so the technology is already there. It's been proven people are using it to track all sorts of aspects of your behavior and your beliefs and what you say and what you buy. Um, in some cases, it's voluntary, like with your personal carbon footprint, but it's easy to flip the switch and make that something that somehow becomes mandatory. Now, there has been some pushback, for example, some UK legislation that you brought up that protects against cancel culture. What have you seen on this front? That's correct. So uh, interestingly, the UK seems to have taken the lead for free speech over the United States. They've had a number of uh, interior ministers and bank regulators. When all of these cancellations at Barclays and NatWest came to light, um, and, uh, sit down with the bank uh, bank executives and say this this is not going to happen in our country. They're also looking to pass laws that say you cannot close people's bank accounts without a clear explanation of why, that customers have the right to appeal, and if banks are found to be discriminating because of legally protected religious or political speech, they can lose their license. We're unfortunately not seeing any of that coming out of our federal government, but it is seems to be happening in the UK. And so in that case, what can the rest of us here in the U.S. do to protect against this possible change? 
Well, um, obviously, uh, something at the federal level where they become more concerned with the First Amendment or First Amendment rights would be nice. But in the meantime, we're seeing a lot of states step up. So Florida, for example, has passed a law banning banks that operate in that state from uh, discriminating according to political or religious views. We had uh, 19 state attorney generals write letters to, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, against what they claim is political and religious debanking by that institution. And we've had 14 14 uh, state financial officers also write letters to that institution, and, and there have been some investigations of the larger banks in the U.S. as well. So any action that seems to be happening in the U.S. is happening at the state level. And is there anything else that you think our viewers should know about this? One option that people may want to consider is moving their accounts towards smaller community banks and um, savings and loans or, or things like this that seem to be a little less aggressive in enforcing these social credit scores. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin Stocklin, Epic Times reporter and producer of the documentary The Shadow State. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the biggest acquisition of baseball's trade deadline thus far. That's right, Steph. Baseball's trade deadline is just 24 hours away, and the team thought to be the biggest sellers, the New York Mets, have been disappointed, trading away three-time Cy Young winner Max Scherzer yesterday to the Texas Rangers for a high-level prospect. Scherzer is the game's highest-paid player at $43 million a season, Though New York will reportedly pay 35 of the nearly $60 million left on his contract, which runs through next season. Now, Scherzer hasn't put up the best numbers so far this year, with an ERA just over four. But two years ago, after he was dealt from the Nationals to the Dodgers midseason, he got especially hot, going 7-0 in 11 starts with an ERA under two and finished third in the Cy Young voting. And in NFL news, Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers defended current offensive coordinator and former Broncos head coach Nathaniel Hackett after some negative comments about him from new Broncos head coach Sean Payton surfaced in a USA Today article last week. Rodgers said in an interview with NFL Plus, quote, I think it was way out of line, inappropriate, and I think he needs to keep my coach's names out of his mouth. Now last week, Payton called Hackett's 15-game run with Denver last season, quote, one of the worst coaching jobs in the history of the NFL, and said there were 20 dirty hands around quarterback Russell Wilson's worst season in the league. He also needled the Jets, saying they were full of pomp and circumstance. Now, Peyton later apologized for his remarks, saying they were a mistake. The Jets and Broncos are scheduled to play against each other week five in Denver. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, we have 10 baseball games on, but in addition to that, Team USA plays Portugal in a somewhat crucial Women's World Cup match. The highly favored Americans likely need a win or draw to advance the knockout stage. The game's in New Zealand starting at 3 a.m. Eastern Time. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.